Well, church family, are you ready to enjoy the word together? It's part of uh, being at Idlewild Bible Church. <laughs> we devote a significant amount of our time together on a morning worshiping the Lord through the study of his word. And, and so I would invite you to make ready for that. Just to have your Bible handy uh, or your iPad or your phone, whatever you're packing today. Have that handy. Um, if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We can supply you with a copy of God's Word. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. Would you grab that as well? And uh, just uh, that will be of some help along the way. Maybe jot down a, a thought or two as we're going along. And we just ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Well, Heavenly Father, You have gone to great lengths to preserve Your uh, Your Word for us. You have put Your heart on a page for us so that we could know what you're thinking and what you long for and desire from us and so that we could know you better as well. And you've done all that by the power of your spirit. And, um, and we're so grateful that we hold the book, the book of books in our laps today. We want to honor you by handling it correctly. And um, so, Lord, I ask your spirit to just move amongst us, make our minds alert, our hearts open and ready. And Lord, uh, help me to stay out of your way uh, this morning as we enjoy you and your truth. To the end that we would glorify you and be better equipped to serve you, we give you our time in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In 1994, a 67-year-old carpenter by the name of Russell Herman died in Marion, Illinois. In his will, he promised the following. $2.4 billion to his town, $2.4 billion to the city of East St. Louis, another $1.5 billion to be used on projects throughout the state of Illinois, and in his final act of unprecedented generosity, he left $6 trillion to the U.S. government to pay off the national debt. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. Now, today, today $6 trillion wouldn't go very far since the national debt is $19 trillion. Uh, but that's another story. There was only one problem, but it was a big problem, right? At the time of his death, the only asset that Mr. Herman actually owned was an 11-year-old car that barely ran. <laughs> now, Russell Herman may not have left behind anything of real monetary value that anybody could count on, but he does leave us with a great reminder this morning. Promises are empty if you don't have the resources or the power to back them up, right? They're, they don't mean anything. And you know, church family, we live in a world of broken promises. We really do. From outlandish political promises, and we're in a season right now where we're hearing a lot of those as we, we ramp up to a presidential election. We're hearing all kinds of political promises that we know aren't going to be kept to over-the-top ads that promise uh, riches or no more wrinkles if you use this particular anti-aging cream, or you're going to lose three pant sizes if you just take this pill faithfully every day, right? We have become accustomed to broken promises, and so therefore we are understandably skeptical people when it comes to promises. We hear so many claims that are just, 
They're just too good to be true. But having said that, in our world of broken promises, there is one. There is one whose promises can always be counted on, and those are whose promises? Those are God's promises. Absolutely. He has all of the power. He has all of the resources, and he has the will to make good on every single promise that he has ever made. Do you believe that this morning? Yeah. As you could guess from the note page or the, the monitor, we are beginning this morning as a church family a brand new study series called Standing on the Promises of God. As I move in and around uh, and amongst our church family, I am aware that many of us, and I don't think the season is, is unusual, but I, I'm, a, I'm just aware that many of us right now are confronted by all manner of various challenges and struggles and, and joy-robbing troubles as we do life in Jesus. It's just hard in the life of our church family. A lot is going on that is not easy. And that's not a real surprise, is it? I mean, Job chapter 5, verse 7 says that you and I are born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly up from a fire, right? How sure are the sparks to fly up? 100% sure they're going to do that, right? And so, too, the troubles in our lives. We get it. We live in a sin-infected world that's not our true home, so we would expect that there's going to be trouble and struggle and, and, and disappointment. Now, that said... I just felt the Holy Spirit um, nudging me, prompting me, urging me to perhaps uh, spend some time on Sunday mornings for a little while here in the spring and, and kind of heading into summer to just spend a little bit of time with some soul encouragement, um, a, a little red bull for the Spirit to lift us up, and uh, a series centered on the promises of God seemed to me like the perfect way to do that. To be able to come here for, for a period of time, week after week, and just, just live in the promises of God. What do you think? You want to do that? Yeah. Now, now depending on who is doing the counting, there are roughly 3,500 promises made by God in the Bible. 3,500 plus or minus. One source I found said there were 30,000 promises from God in the Bible. But that's a little perhaps high since there's only 31,000 verses in the Bible. So that might be on the high end. But most would land in the 3,500 plus or minus range of promises. And that's a lot of promises. And no, we are not going to be looking at every single one of them uh, in this series. And I'm sure you're happy about that. But we're going to look at some. Our, in our Bibles, God and Jesus have made some wonderful, wonderful promises to us. The promise of eternal life. The promise of, of guidance by the Spirit of God. The promise of rest. The promise of victory. The promise of answered prayer. Of wisdom. Of, of peace. The promise of, of God's presence. The, the promise of escape. Guaranteed escape from every temptation. It's promised. To us, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of Jesus' return, and many more besides. So we're going to be weekly kind of just doing some soul and spirit pick-up, pick-me-ups as we spend time with the promises of God together. 
When God makes a promise, you can count on it. You've just said that that's true for you in your life. Let's read together right off the screen, church family. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Can we do that together? Let's do it. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Does he promise and not fulfill? No, of course he doesn't. He promises and then he fulfills. Never ever has God broken a promise that he has made. Never will he break a promise that he has made. Here's a definition of God's promises there on your note page. And and I just kind of put this in here together. We're going to return to this definition and kind of work out of it over the course of the next several weeks together. But here's kind of a working definition. God's promises are the irrevocable guarantees that he gives to his children so they can live daily with confident faith even while they wait patiently for him to work. Now, there's a lot going on in that little definition. We're not going to unpack it here, but we will unpack it over time. God's promises are the irrevocable guarantees that he gives to his children, that's us, so that we can live daily with confident faith even while we wait patiently. Oh, boy, there's the hard part, right? Wait patiently for him to work. Also there on your note page, just some encouraging quotes that I, I kind of stuck out to me as I was prepping for our time together. A pastor by the name of George Parsons weighs in on the difference between God's promises and God's commands. And this was helpful. I appreciated it, so I passed it on. A command from God is something that we should do. A promise from God is something that what? That he's going to do, that God will do. A command must be obeyed. A promise must be what? Believed. That's a pretty significant difference. And when God gives a command, he says, you will. When God makes a promise, he says, I will. It's on me. I will do that. Others, reflecting on God's promises, have made some other observations. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma in a time past, once said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And boy, as a missionary, don't you know he was clinging to the promises of God. D.L. Moody, great pastor from another century, added, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. That's cool. And here's a statement worth pondering. God never overpromises and he never underdelivers. I like that one. C.H. Spurgeon, you might know his name, great British preacher of the 1800s. He said, the promises of God are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. Happy is it for them if they know how to search out the secret veins. You can picture a mine with the veins of, of treasure and enrich themselves with these hidden treasures. And, and my prayer, church family, is that that would be our experience as we spend time together with the promises of God, that we would be happy, that we would be enriched, and ultimately that God gets glory from our time. Now, as we prepare to step into this new series and we join up with each other and we travel this road of God's promises for the next several weeks because we share a common faith in the Lord Jesus, it might be a good idea if we just remind ourselves of, of some of the rules of the road 
of God's promises. We can think of these, and I've jotted down a total number of eight there on your note page. Think of these uh, kind of like guardrails on a windy mountain road. Think of these eight, these eight things we're going to touch on that will keep us on the road of God's promises and moving forward in a, in a way that will honor him. For example, near the bottom of your page, when it comes to knowing and claiming and rightly using God's many promises, we always want to be what? Context aware. We will want to be careful as we look at the promises of God to set them into their context and use them in the way that the Holy Spirit gave them to us in the scriptures so that we grasp their full meaning, but so that we also apply them rightly, these promises. Now, this is just a fundamental uh, part of being a good student of God's word, and we kind of talk about this often here at IBC. We don't want to yank verses out of context and then misuse them. We really try to stay in context. One of the most popular Bible promises we hear passed around comes out of Hebrews 13, verse 5, and it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says that. God says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have you heard that promise? Has it been passed along to you at some point in your life? Sure. And it's a wonderful promise, and, and it's very comforting, but seldom is the first part of the verse shared as well when that promise is given. How does the whole verse read? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the context for that promise. Because of the promise of God's presence and his provision, we can live free of the love of money and be fully content with what we have, right? That's the promise because we have God's presence. We don't need to ever live in an agitated state of discontentedness because God has promised, hey, I'm going to be with you. And you're not going to go down if I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. Now, that's a promise we all need. But sometimes we take that promise and we yank that out of context. So we want to stay on the road by keeping in context. Number two, at the very bottom of your page there on the front, the ultimate aim of every God promise is what? Is God's glory. Absolutely. It's God's glory. Over the coming weeks, we are going to be sharing some incredible promises that God has made to us. And the benefits of those promises for us, man, they are extraordinary the benefits. But ultimately, every promise that God gives us in his word is all about who? Him. The promise is for us, but it's all about him, right? And we don't want to forget that. We want to, we want to keep that clearly in front of us as we tra- travel down this road of his promises. As God is faithful to his promise, he glorifies himself, even as we are benefited from the promise. We claim his promises de- desiring that God be glorified first rather than, oh, you know, there's a promise and then saying, God, you need to keep your promise. You need to keep it this way and you need to keep it in this time frame. That's all about us, isn't it? No, we want it to be all about God. So we say, Lord, you've made a promise to me. You've made a promise and I want you to be glorified as you bring that promise into my life in your time and in your way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 points us in the right direction. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? Including 
laying claim to God's promises, we do that for the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the psalmist understood this when he writes in Psalm 119.38, Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be what? Honored. Fulfill your promise to me, Lord, but not for me. Fulfill it so that you will be honored, revered, uh, glorified. The promise wasn't about the psalmist. It was all about God, and that's the way that it should be. And then third, if you flip your note page over near the top, we must be willing to accept all of God's promises and not just the ones we like, right? (laughs) Yeah, for example, Jesus promises. He actually promises that those who love him and determine that they're going to live their life for him are going to experience persecution and hardship and ridicule and suffering and possible loss. That's a promise from Jesus. How does that make you feel? I'll bet that's not on your den wall, right? <laughs> but it's right there, John 16, In this world, you will have what? You're going to have trouble. Man. Jesus says it. It's true. It's going to happen. But he also promises in the second half of the verse, but take heart, I have what? I've overcome the world. Bottom line, even the unpleasant parts of God's promises are good for us because they keep our eyes wide open. We know what our world's all about because of the promises of God. So that's cool. Number four, be mindful that some of God's promises are conditional. Many of his promises are unconditional. They're all on him. But God does often like to partner with us in his promises. We see this often, especially in in God's dealings with his people Israel in the Old Testament. Here's one great example of that. And we sometimes call these if-then promises for good reason. Check this one out. Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is God speaking. He says to Israel, For if you will be careful, if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. That's a conditional promise from God to Israel. We find these conditional conditional promises in the New Testament as well. One out of James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's a conditional promise. He says, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to hold you up, but what do you have to do? You humble yourself. You humble yourself in dependence and trust. And God says, I will lift you up. That's a conditional promise. Number five, God's promises must be appropriated by what? The only way to lay hold of them is by faith. Charles Spurgeon once again said, Do not treat God's promises as if they were curiosities for a museum. Believe them and use them. Believe them and use them. By the exercise of our faith, God's promises become personal and we personally experience the results of them. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews remembers how Israel failed to believe God could take the nation into a brand new land called the promised land. And so the writer's reflecting on this and he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, 
But the word which they heard, or the promise which God made, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And you know the story. As a result of their unwillingness to believe the promise of God, as a result of that, there was a whole generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, never stepping foot on the promised land ground. In Psalm 106, verse 24, the psalmist says the same thing about this moment in Israel's history. They, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Is faith a big deal when we talk about God's promises? Man, it's absolutely huge. Joshua 21, 43, just to complete this little moment, uh, Joshua writes at the end, after they, the people have come into the land, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, that he promised to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled it because they exercised faith. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, if we want to live in the land of God's promises, then we have to be people of faith, right? We have to be willing to trust him, even when it doesn't look too good at times. And then that feeds right into this Guardrail number six, do not be passive with God's promises. If you and I want to realize the maximum gain from one of God's promises, we can't be mamby-pamby, lazy, timid, tentative, milk-toasty followers of Jesus. We need to lay hold of the promises of God with white knuckles, like a white knuckle grip, and we don't let go, right? That's how you handle the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, the same energy, the same aggressiveness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish or lazy or weak, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the what? The promises of God. Be aggressive. Be aggressive. Don't be passive with God's promises. Like Spurgeon said a moment ago, do not treat God's promises as if they were curiosities for a museum, fragile and prone to be broken. Don't treat them like that. Treat them, believe them, and use them, he said. Be aggressive. Number seven, we must make sure that we are heart ready to receive God's promises. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Well, that's an interesting verse. It's not talking about God's promises. It's talking about prayer. The verse reminds us that our prayer life is going to be dramatically impacted by the presence of willful sin in our lives. If I let the, the, the world into my life and into my heart, my prayer life's going to tank, Right? We all know this from personal experience. God refuses to, to be mocked, if you will, as we would live like the world and then pray to him as if things were all great and good. That doesn't work. In the same way, the promises of God, we tap into their power um, as we are running hard after him. Not living perfectly because we can't do that, but keeping short accounts with sin and longing to be in step with him here in our hearts. The New Testament writer James kind of hits on this issue of being heart ready when he speaks about a promise 
that God gives to every believer in Jesus, and it's the promise that you can ask him for wisdom, and he will be glad to give it to you if you ask without any doubting. Check it out, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Now, that's a promise. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Heart has to be in the right place. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, heart ready to receive the promises of God. And then one more guardrail, number eight there on your note page. Never, ever give up Give up if God has made a promise to you. Why? Why, church? Never give up. Why? Well, he's faithful. He's going to keep his promise. It's God, right? And he can't break a promise. Sometimes we have to wait a long time for a God promise to be fulfilled. We might be tempted to toss in the towel and quit, give up. Hebrews 10, verse 23 says, don't do that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Yes. Well-respected Bible teacher from the last century, his name is Herbert Lockyer. He writes, all God's promises concerning his own, that's you and me, concerning his own, are dated in heaven. Think about that. Every promise God has made to you is dated in heaven. And with our finite knowledge, we cannot read the time when many of them will be fulfilled. So what do we do? We just wait. Because God is what? He is faithful. Yeah. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Guardrails on the promise road. Good rules for us to keep in mind as we step in to this series. And in a world of broken promises, man, we'll just say it once again. God can be counted on. Earlier I shared with you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's there on the other side of your note page now. Again, he says, The promises of God are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. Happy is it for those uh, if they who know... how. Happy is it for them if they know how to search out the secret veins and enrich themselves with these hidden treasures. But that's not the whole quote. Spurgeon goes on and says, God's promises are to the believer an armory containing all manner of offensive and defensive weapons. You ever thought about that? That the promises of God are your weapons and your armor? Blessed are they who have learned to enter into the sacred arsenal to put on the breastplate and the helmet and to lay their hands on the spear and the sword of divine promise. Happy is the one who knows how to read them well and call them their own. See then, my brothers and sisters, how necessary it is that you and I should know the heavenly art of obtaining these promises. It's an art. It's It's a heavenly art. And we want to perfect that skill in our lives. Allow me now to just take a moment and just share some of these 3,500 plus promises of God with you. What I'd like to invite you to do for just a moment is just to kind of keep your Bible where it is and, and close your eyes and listen to the Lord as he whispers a host of his promises to you. 
I won't supply the reference in this moment. Just, just, I'll just read the promise right out of Scripture and, and allow you, ask you to allow yourself to let it wash over you. Just wash over you. I'll read the reference. All the references that I'm about to read are, are on your page so you can come back and find them later. For now, though, close your eyes, listen, and worship. I rejoice in your promises like one who finds great treasure. Lord, you have kept your promises because you are righteous. The Lord is faithful to all his promises, loving toward all he has made. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness for the glory of God. Amen and amen. 
How was that? Was that good? Did that do something for your heart this morning? Yeah? Yeah? I call us back to this place of one of our, our, our guardrails. All of this is for the what? The glory of God, says Second Corinthians 7, 1. Perhaps this week, in your quiet time, you can hang out with some of these promises uh, and maybe invest yourself in the larger passages from which they're drawn and find a blessing. Again, all the references are there on your note page that I read from, and there's more that I didn't read. As we wrap all of this up for today, can I, can I call your attention to two key passages that, in a manner of speaking, will powerfully frame this entire series? The first is found in the opening verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. You might want to turn there, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, if you don't know these two verses by heart, these are two to put in your heart. Here's how they read. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, that is Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, there is a lot going on in in these verses. We're going to just barely scratch the surface, but notice a couple of things right off. First, how good is it to know from the opening sentence of verse 3, to know that God has already given us everything we need to do the Christian life right now. How good is it to know that? That is an awesome thing to know. Nobody, and I mean nobody, will ever stand before God and say, you didn't give me what I needed to do this thing called life in Jesus. You're not going to stand before God and say that. Why? Because of the opening sentence of verse 3. Because God has given us everything we need to do that. We have all things. All things. What does that mean? All things. Right? Not not most things. Not some of the things we need. All the things that we need. Everything we need. If we fail to live well for Jesus now, it's because we did not appropriate the power that God wanted to give us through faith in Jesus. That's it. Second, through our faith in the Lord Jesus, God has given, has granted us, past tense, his very precious and very great promises. God's promises are precious and very great. The word precious means prized, beyond value. That's what that word means. And the word very great comes from the Greek word, uh, the root word mega, megas, which means exceedingly outstanding. His promises are to be prized because they are very great, beyond value, mega outstanding. John Bunyan, do you know that name? Not Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox, not that. John Bunyan. He wrote one of my all-time favorite books, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that book in the late 1600s uh, during a course of 12 12 years of being in prison for Jesus' sake. But he writes these words as well. He says, The pathway of life is strewn so thickly 
with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon at least one of them. (laughs) I like that thought. You cannot take a step today without stepping on God's promises in your life. Precious and very great. And then Peter, by the Holy Spirit, says there are two benefits that come to us if we lay hold of these great and precious promises. First, we get closer to Jesus. Do you like that thought? As we lay hold of the promises of God, we get closer to Jesus. God gives us his promises so that through them you may become partakers of what? The divine nature. As we take hold of God's promises and we really trust in those, we begin to reflect more and more of the character of Jesus. More of his nature becomes part of our nature. In other words, as we live and breathe and move within the promises of God, we become more conformed like to the likeness of Jesus. And that's one of the promises of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you will be conformed to the likeness of my son. How's he going to do that? through his very great and precious promises. Second benefit we realize in verse 4 is that we get farther from sin as we live in the promises of God. Do you like that thought? I love that thought. We get closer to Jesus, we get farther away from sin, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So living in the promises of God keeps us on a godly track. We don't take those, those detours into the places where sin can, can mess with our lives and the lives of other people as well. And, and by the way, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 is a promise. Would that we would hide it in our hearts. In a world of broken promises, God can be counted on for this promise. And then that other powerful promise passage it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Check this out. We'll put it up on the screen for you. For all the promises of God find their yes in who? In the Lord Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's a great verse. The Holy Spirit says here to the Corinthian church and to us, IBC, he says, listen, the promises of God are not yes and no. They're not offered and then withdrawn. They are not, I don't know, or maybe so, or it could happen. The promises of God are what? Yes. Always yes. In who? In the Lord Jesus The Greek word for yes here means certain and true. All of heaven's promises are established and made absolutely certain beyond all doubt by Jesus. And the reason that's true is because Jesus perfectly kept every requirement that God made, every condition that he required, God, uh, Jesus kept all of those. He left nothing undone. And since he has fulfilled all of the Father's conditions for how we can have a personal relationship with him, then all of God's promises come through Jesus to us, making them all yes. You follow that line of thinking? That is really cool. That is why it is through him, Paul says, that we utter our amen to God. What does amen mean? That's a Hebrew word, and it means so be it, or it's already done, or it's fully accomplished. Amen. And amen, right? 
we say, Father God, all of your promises made to me are going to be kept because my faith is in Jesus who met all of the requirements that I couldn't meet. That's cool. We must know Jesus to be, we must be in Jesus in order to lay claim to his promises. That's the key though, isn't it? You've got to be in Jesus. For all of this to, to have any impact on your life, you have to be in Jesus. And so God is looking for sinners who will say yes and amen to Jesus first. And then God will say yes to his promises and we'll say amen to those as well. Let's not miss the last three words of verse 20 as we go home. What is this all about again? It's all about his glory, isn't it? The promises of God are all about his glory. God gets the glory through us when we take hold of his promises and absolutely refuse to let go of them. Amen and amen. Someone has made the observation, and I believe it's correct, that God's entire communication with you and me can be put into two words. I promise. Think about that. Everything that God has said in the book can be put into two words. I promise. And God never breaks a promise. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Amen and amen. (laughs) Absolutely certain, sure, done, complete. Let it be so. That's what we say, Lord God, as we reflect here today and just begin to think about your promises in our lives. We are so grateful to you that you supplied everything we need to do life with you through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, not through anything that we would ever do, but but what he has done for us. So we say thank you for that. And we thank you that as we pursue your promises, we're going to become more like like you, Jesus. We're going to reflect your character in our lives more than if we didn't spend time with these promises. And that's encouraging to us. And we will also run more quickly away from sin. And we want that in our lives too. So, so I just ask you, Heavenly Father, bless your promises as we take them up week to week here going into the spring and and spend some time we love you lord but only because you loved us first you are our great promise keeper and we say thank you and all god's people say amen and amen